Welcome to the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and with me once again from Gainesville, Florida is Mr. Anthony Rue. Hi, Anthony. Good evening. And also from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. How is it going down there, Theo? Oh, it's going pretty good, mate. We've got freedom now, so we're, we're all happy. Oh, the lockdown is over. Again. All right. Yeah, the lockdown in Sydney is over. Does that mean you have to bathe now? <laughs> yeah, maybe get a haircut too. <laughs> Before we get started, I wanted to take a quick moment to acknowledge the recent passing of lifetime photographer, camera collector, and friend Dan Arnold. Dan frequently posted in the Vintage Camera Collectors Facebook group where he and I communicated a number of times. My review for the Ihegi Auto Ultrix was a loaner from Dan that he sent me a non-working order, which I was able to clean and shoot a few rolls through. I met Dan only once back in 2019 at a camera show in Cincinnati, where he frequently attended with Paul Reibold and Dan Hausman. Dan, uh, Dan Arnold passed away peacefully on September 24th. As we do every week, the call lines are open for anyone to join us, but this week we have a special guest that I'm really excited to talk to. Mr. Robert Shanebrook is from Rochester, New York, and in addition to being a 30-plus year employee of Eastman Kodak, Robert authored a book titled Making Kodak Film. The second edition of this book is filled with 470 pages of everything you could ever want to know about how film is made. Welcome, Robert. Oh, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's super exciting. You know, I mean, the... Um, I don't know how familiar with my website, MikeEckman.com, but you know, one thing that I think differentiates my reviews from some of the others out there is that I really have a, a fascination with history and a good portion of each review that I write talks about, you know, how things used to be the history, the stories and everything. So, you know, having the opportunity to talk to you, um, it just is really exciting because, you know, there's so much knowledge that must be in your head, you know, all those years of working at Kodak. Um, I, I think it's really important to share that kind of stuff and preserve it. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of gave the shortest possible introduction to your book, but um, <laughs> do you want? Is, is there anything I missed or anything you want to say about yourself? Sure. Uh, I, I started as a photographer when I was. Uh, I worked for a professional photographer when I was about fifteen. Ran my first C prints when I was about fifteen. I might have only been fourteen. And I've been involved in photography, both as a vocation and avocation ever since, and still am. Uh, as you said, I, I, I wrote a book. Let me show it to you. Here's the book, uh, Making Kodak Film. Um, my objective was I worked for so many years with tremendous people that put all of their efforts and expertise into making photographic film. But we never shared what we did or how we did it. That was a corporate directive. And I retired in 2003. When I retired, I asked Kodak if I could document how film was made. And I got a big, no. <laughs> too many industry secrets. We can't tell people what we do or how we do it. It's too commercially too valuable. And we, we just aren't going to do that. Uh, Kodak had a long history of guarding things secretively, mm -hmm. so much so that chemicals were given artificial names so it, that no one knew exactly what chemical was used for various purposes. Uh, chemicals would change names and have different names in different parts of the, of the company. Uh, people who worked on paper didn't work on film. 
they were kept separate so that that knowledge would, no one would have too much knowledge of how things were done. Uh, when I when I did approach them a few years after I retired, they told me they'd give me permission to document things, but I could never publish it. That what I wrote had to be would I ha would have to turn over to the company, which I was prepared to do. Uh, I was going to do I was just sort of out of the goodness of my heart. I was going to photograph how everything was done and document it, then give the manuscript to Kodak so that they might publish it sometime in the future. As the business continued to deteriorate, which is the only word I can use, they became somewhat more amenable to my documenting it and sharing it. Though when I came out, sorry, I thought I had to reach. When I came out with the first edition of the book in 2010, so, because nobody can see the video, the the first edition, how how oh. big is that compared to the second? Okay, yeah, the first edition, they're both eight and a half by eleven, full color. Uh, the first edition is ninety four pages, and that really just deals with modern day manufacturing. The second edition is four hundred and seventy pages. It has an additional few hundred photographs, wow. and it looks like the second edition is a hardcover. The second edition is a hardcover. Okay. Um, when I did the first edition, they they allowed they made me edit out some things that they didn't let me share. In the second edition, I was pretty much able to share anything I wanted. Wow. Um, like the director's cut, you know, they they release movies, yeah. you get the director's cut. <laughs> yeah, but because they were still concerned about things, they were concerned about a process called T-perfing, which is a high-speed way of perforating um, motion picture film. They didn't want that shared in the first edition, and they were very goosey about uh, the actual coating, uh, the device that actually coats film. It's a it's, it's called curtain coating. And you can code up to 10 layers simultaneously. Wow. They were real nervous about that. They didn't want anybody to know. They didn't want to share that information. Eventually, I convinced them that we were keeping secrets from each other, not from other manufacturers, because no other manufacturer was going to retool and do things differently just because they knew how Kodak was making right. them. Um, you know, the major people were basically ill Ilford, Fuji, and Konica. Uh, they weren't going to change the way they did things just because we did them a certain way. They, they had their own way of doing things. So at that point in 2016, they gave me permission to publish the larger book. Uh, they didn't participate in any fashion other than the book was reviewed by about 50 Kodak people. Uh, took uh, over nine months for them to review it. They made virtually no changes. They didn't wow. find, luckily, they didn't find any errors. <laughs> and I haven't found any errors in the book yet. There's a few typos, yeah, uh, misplaced well, periods and things like that. Yeah, I, 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 before we started, I created a laundry list of questions, uh, but I want to let Fire. other people ask questions too. Um, but real quick, we had another person join us too, Howard Sandler, right? Howard, yeah. uh, welcome. Um, we have Robert Shanebrook on. He's the author of Making Kodak Film. Uh, so we're kind of going through uh, 
the process of tapping his brain. But um, if, if you or Mario or anybody has any questions. Um, I don't think we actually introduced Mario. Oh, we didn't. I'm sorry. Mario, um, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just saying that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> do, you want, do you want to say anything about yourself, Mario? Oh, um, well, I, there's not too much about myself. I was only recently begun uh, shooting film about two and a half years ago. So I'm probably the newbie among all of us. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's, I've completely given up digital because film is just so fascinating. Um, and so I'm very thankful to be here to, to talk with you all. Excellent. Actually listen to most, listen mostly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We try to do things a little bit different and let anybody join in and talk. Um, but, um, but Robert, I, I read on another website that you helped build a camera that was used on the Apollo 11 mission. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, I graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology with a degree in photography in March of 1969. So I, I had worked for Kodak two previous summers as a studio photographer, shooting catalogs and various things at eight at base, mostly 810 uh, cameras. So I was, I was hired in in March and as part of my responsibility uh, as a photographer, I was assigned to work on a proje project that Kodak was doing for NASA. It was the Apollo Lunar Surface Close-Up Camera. We, Kodak had gotten a contract in January to build a camera that was to, to be delivered in June and to fly in July of 69 oh, wow. on Apollo 11. So uh, I was a kid, all right? <laughs> I was like 21. Yeah. And I uh, was assigned to this thing. And most of the other guys were 25 years my senior, so much so that when we had a reunion, we had a reunion that was to be the 50th reunion of our working on the camera. And it was in July. July 19th. I was the only survivor. I was the only one that was alive that had worked on the project. And there were probably 35 people on the project. So technically, so, every day is a reunion of that. If you're the yeah, only one alive. I suppose so. <laughs> but I, I, I was, you know, I was, what did I, do? you know, I didn't think much of it. It was nice to work on something for the Apollo program. But I made sure that I handled that. I handled every camera. The camera was partially designed when I, started in March, but it was just a breadboard. And I worked with all the models and all the uh, engineering models and all the final cameras to make sure they worked and talked to the designers about uh, how the camera was to be used. As it turned out, uh, the, the camera was carried on Apollo 11 and, and a few subsequent Apollo missions on the moon. Wow. And how it worked is it was a was like a bread box on a stick. People called it the walking stick camera. And it was a stereo camera with internal flash and it photographed an area about three inches square in stereo of the surface. And then at the end of the mission, uh, they took the top off the cam. Oh, the other thing was how, how Apollo worked is we were given us, this is an 11th hour addition to their kit. We were given a space that was about, it was uh, an odd shape. It was kidney shaped and about 15 inches tall. So what it was is there was two things working. One group said, you have a, you have a hole you can put this in in the Apollo and the lander. 
that's uh, a kidney shaped thing about eight inches and about 15 inches long. And another group of people saying, this is what we want the camera to do. So we had to work within that space and meet the specifications. So we ended up putting a spring loaded uh, skirt on the camera so that it could uh, be bigger because we needed it to be taller. And it was like a huge lens shade. And then there was a stick because the astronauts can't bend over. So there was a cane on the top of it with a trigger. So the, the astronauts walked around the moon, put this thing on the ground, pulled the trigger, the flash went off, the film advanced. Uh, at the end of the mission, they took the top off the camera, cut, cut the film, and returned to Earth with a magazine that held, I think, 37 and a half feet of film. And the pictures came out great. So everybody was happy. And we made some modifications in the camera so that it flew on Apollo 11, it flew on 13, it flew on 14. So do they uh, just bring the magazine back or do they bring the camera oh, back yeah. too? Wait, wait's a big deal. Yeah. So the camera was left on the moon. So I, I've touched several cameras that are currently on the moon. So, so, so you're, I can't say that I've ever met anybody in my life who's actually worked on something that is physically sitting on the moon right now. That is pretty cool. Well, there's quite a few people that build a lander. So <laughs> I've never talked to them. There's people kicking around. So that was, that is it, neat. It, it was, it was great. The pictures came out, the camera worked every time. So everybody was happy. We made, I think we made 16 or 18 of the cameras. Wow. Uh, did, did it shoot standard uh, 35 millimeter film? And do you yeah, remember it was 35 what? millimeter octachrome on S-Star. You have to use S-Star because on, with acetate in the vacuum, the solvent comes out and that can deposit on the lenses. So, and S-Star is stronger and we were, that's all, all the film for NASA and for the spice. I worked on spy satellites too, but all the film for NASA was on S-Star because so, of outgassing so believe it or not of of the 15 questions that i had pre-typed up one of them was what is s star base because i see that and i don't know what it means like oh, okay it's simple pop, pop bottles are made of polyethylene terephthalate so s star is polyethylene terephthalate so is mylar it was developed in england uh, before uh, let's see in the fifth, yeah, in the fifties, it was developed by a British plastics company. Uh, Dupont bought the patent rights for use in the United States. Mm -hmm. Kodak leased the patent rights from Dupont, and Kodak perfected it more for photographic purposes. But it, it's it's the same material that pop bottles are made out of: polyethylene terephthalate. It's PET. It has different my book actually describes it pretty well. It, it has different characteristics than acetate, which is used for 35 millimeter film. Both, there's no ideal support, depending on what you want to do. Sometimes you want to use acetate. Sometimes you want to use S-Star. Uh, S-Star is, is uh, basically an acetate, is a, an acetate, S, I'm sorry. Acetate is tricellulose acetate. It's a, it's petroleum. Uh, well, it's, it's a material that has different characteristics than S-Star. Okay. Uh, but a 35 millimeter camera film that you guys like, uh, Ectochrome films and 
Portra films and Triax and Tmax films are most of that is made on acetate. But I so you're accustomed to. don't don't some cinema films use any SR base? Sure, print films. That is the film that goes through projectors. Used to be on acetate, and then later, um, maybe 20 years ago, switched to SDAR. Camera films are mostly acetate. That is, motion picture origination films are almost always on acetate. One of the reasons is if you have a miss, a misfeed in the camera, if you have SDAR in your camera, it'll probably tear up the per, tear up the mechanical parts of the camera because it's so much stronger. Right. Because it's so strong. It's yeah. mechanically very strong. It, uh, Acetate, a, you'll strip the perforations. A, a funny story is my first experience with an S-Star film um, was I was in, I, I don't have a dark room. I just, when I need to work in darkness, I work in my basement bathroom with the lights off because there's no windows. It's perfectly dark. But uh, I needed to tear the film and I'd forgotten my scissors. And usually I can just use my teeth to tear no. through most film. And you cannot do that with S-Star film. It no. is... It is way stronger. And I, I, I was like, shit, what do I do? I got to open the door to go get the scissors to come back in here to cut this out. Uh, and I, I did not realize how strong that was. But that's interesting. You said that it can actually tear up the mechanism. Does, yeah, it, impact the, the actual, does it actually impact the, the way it winds or the tension or anything like that in the camera? Um, does that make a difference in terms of um, because of its strength? Absolutely. If you're, if you're designing a sophisticated camera for SDAR, it's going to be different than the camera for acetate. Mario, did you have a question? Uh, that's an, it's very interesting to me because uh, one of my absolute favorite films that I love to shoot is um, Kodak 2254. It's, a, um, it's described as a digital intermediary film. or digital, it's, a yeah. it's a lab film on SDAR, yeah. Okay. I love the look of, that that film renders. In fact, I've got it um, in my Konica 3A. And I want to thank you, Mike, for uh, kind of doing a review of the Konica 3, which led me to this. So <laughs> very beautiful camera. But that, uh, that film is just so marvelous. But I, I agree, it's really tough to cut. Um, I have like 200 feet of it that I've, uh, I'm in the process of bulk ro rolling and things. Um, but w one of the questions I have actually about that film is what um, what makes like that film is tr transparent even before it's used. Like most film, most film has a it's not transparent at all. But the twenty two fifty four other films that are like that, the really super low ISO films, it seems like they're they're transparent or at least translucent. What's why is there a difference between the, I guess, the more um, commercially based films versus these obscure films or cinema films? Okay. The fundamental difference is based on speed. You're trying to build in a film like Triax or T-Max or Portra or whatever. You, you need larger grains because the, you, the, the, for the film to be faster, you have to have larger grains and these larger grains is, end up absorbing light. The light in those films that goes through the film is lost, right? If the photons don't get absorbed by the silver halide grains, they don't do you any good in the image. In those fine grain, slow lab films, some of them can be transparent. That's not it's not an object. It's not a design objective that they be transparent. 
It just sort of comes out that way. The it's same is true with the colors of the films. Uh, co films are different colors. We don't really pay attention to what color Rostock is going to be. But when you put the, the various absorbing dyes in, in materials, it kind of comes out that way. We don't really look at Ross. We don't really look at raw stock when you're designing a film. You don't care how it looks. Okay, that that did answer a little bit more of another question I had, which is the what makes a slow slow speed film and a, and the difference between a fast speed and a slow speed or high speed low speed film, um, like the chemical difference between the two. And you, wonderful okay. explanation. Thank you. Yeah, it's silver halide grains, larger the grains, the more light that hits it, the more light that hits it, the faster the film will be. And it's not the light that hits it as much as the light that is absorbed. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's why we, in films like T-Max, there's a slug of dye. It's a technical term. There's a slug of dye in that, and the dye is in it to absorb light. The other thing about T-grain films is that T-grain films have a, okay, uh, 3D films like, uh, like Tri-X, view of them as basketballs. They're not round, but they're almost, they're tetrahedral. So you got a chunk of silver. I, I won't use my hands. You have a chunk of silver. In the, in the case of T-grains, they're more like paper plates. So if I took the basketball and I sliced it Assume the basketball is solid, and I sliced, I sliced it into paper plate-sized pieces of silver halide. I get a lot more surface area. I can put, I can put more dye in on the film grain if I have a bunch of paper plates as opposed to having a basketball. So I put a, that way. I can put more dye in, and that's why the, there's a dye retention when you go to wash uh, T-Max film there's a little magenta left and that magenta is left because it's on this unexposed silver halide grains. Is that why when I sorry to interrupt when, when I sure. do, I do a lot of T max and it seems like it takes a lot longer to fix than other black and white films. Is that why? Cause it, it holds onto that dye longer. Yes. And you have to dissolve, you have to dissolve the, the unexposed silver halide. You have to fix that out. And when you, when you dissolve the silver, the dye is released. It turns out that retained dye really isn't an issue, but it's aesthetically not very pleasing. We did a lot of work to determine if that retained dye was an issue. And we've never, we were never able to prove that it caused a problem, but aesthetically people don't like it. And it, it fades away with either light or time, but, that that's why the retained dye but the dye is what gives you the fine grain and yeah. the spectral sensitivity that t-max the three t-max films have it's amazing to me how many questions you're answering that i literally wrote down <laughs> before i howard had a couple good questions for you, though so i'm gonna i'm gonna give him a chance to ask his well, <clears throat> you were uh, talking about um designing cameras for space missions and i yeah. And then about film bases. And I, I was wondering if uh, the, the air must be quite dry in the spacecraft. Is the static electricity a problem? And does the film base acetate versus S-star make a difference for static electricity buildup? Okay. There's about six questions there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, it depends on the spacecraft. Uh, and for Nat, okay, remember this too. Uh, 
you got two space programs. You've got NASA and you've got Department of Defense. I worked on both. Uh, NASA, they had humidity in the space capsule because those guys are breathing, need to breathe, and they're exhaling and pumping moisture into the air. So static's not a problem in the space shuttle nor the Apollo program. In uh, spy satellites, I worked on a spy satellite called Gambit. Was uh, basically flew up. It flew a polar orbit so that it flew over the Soviet Union and China and India, basically. That's so-called uh, restricted airspace. In those devices, sometimes you pump moisture in if you're going to have a problem. In one of the later devices called Hexagon, uh, they maintain a nit nitrogen humidified environment where the film was. In earlier ones like Gambit, those satellites uh, used, well, how we did it is in spooling the film, film was spooled, okay, film was spooled in a humidified environment, around 45% RH. So, so there was some moisture in the film itself when it went on orbit. So that helped reduce some of the static. The other thing that was done is they used various techniques to bleed off. Everything was grounded. So you bleed, you bled off the static. But that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, film, hand, okay, film handling in these satellites was moved fast. It moved up to, so you're moving the film fast and you're going over metal rollers. Uh, things aren't grounded. You generate static and you'll get, you'll get very either spot, called spot static or you'll get branch static. And that's an issue. But one way was to hum in, in spooling the film, we pre-humidified the film. But that, you know, that, and static can be a disaster. If you're looking for something on the ground and there's a piece of static over it, it's going to make people real unhappy. Yeah, I, I never really thought much about retrieving the film from these spy satellites back when they were using film cameras. Uh, there's a good thriller movie from the late 60s, uh, Ice Station Zebra. I've watched they, it several times. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I never really thought about, you know, that really, they really had to do that in those days. So. <laughs> yeah. And how that, how that was done is the film was jettisoned out of the capsule and then picked up by an airplane that was snagged out of the sky and then flown to Hawaii, flown to Hickman in Hawaii. <laughs> and then flown to Rochester, and all that film was processed in Rochester by Kodak. Fascinating. Can you hold the patch up again for just a second? Sure. I think you need to talk so that it switches up. Oh, and that was, that was a, uh, there was a test squadron out of Hawaii that was called Catch a, oh, their slogan was Catch a Falling Star. And what they did was they caught the film that came wow. back from the various satellites up crazy. until about 1990. Anything I'm telling you is prior to 1990. Uh, that's all that's been declassified. Now, were you involved in developing any of this stuff then, or is that different different people? I was a kid, right? So that's I was. True. It, this was 1970. Okay. 19, it was in the early 70s. I did some things for them, but I keep. 
I, I always say I didn't do anything important. <laughs> I did things that needed to be done. I was yeah. well aware of it. Uh, I did some stuff they use, but I would, the, the, the objective of Kodak, the first five years, you were supposed to be learning. You didn't, you didn't, you had assignments, but the objective was for you to learn things. So I, my main thing I did in those five years was to learn about how all these systems work. And then I, I did that for five years. And then I were moved to the, I worked in the first five years, I worked in something called optics research. And then from there, I moved into uh, film, developing new films in 1974. And I did that until I retired to, in 2003. Were there any uh, film stocks that, that made it to production that you had a hand in working on the development of? Oh, yeah. All Lots. the T-Max films. Okay. Uh, Tri-X that's currently manufactured. Kodachrome 200, Kodachrome 64. I didn't do much in Kodachrome 25, XC, Ectochrome EPP, uh, 6118, which was Ectochrome type B, uh, no, Ectochrome 64T, uh, Ectochrome 200. I didn't do much in Ectochrome 400. All the portrait films, uh, some Veracolor films, Elite Paper. I did that early. But I had responsibility for all the films. So, so is there any any particular film that went through the development but never actually got released that you you wish had been released? No, if it didn't, I did work on films that were in development but never got released. But usually they weren't released because they didn't deserve to be released. We worked before Portra. We worked on a uh, predecessor to Portra that was called Iris that did not meet the grain structure and sharpness requirements. So we canceled that program, went back to the drawing board and came out with portrait, what, what turned out to be portrait films, which was called, we called it Galileo at that point. Um, How close was Veracolor 3 to Portra? I know they were both available in 160. Are they at all the not same? Not very close at all. They're not? Okay. Uh, we did. Not, not very close in the sense that I think Portra's far superior to Veracolor 3. Veracolor 3 was a low saturation, high contrast film where uh, port, the, the Portra films have higher saturation and somewhat lower contrast, though you may not believe that, but the saturation overwhelms the contrast. Uh, we did, as I just, by, by the way, my website is making Kodak film. It's very, my wife came up with that. It was quite imaginative. <laughs> uh, and and I, I talk about it in the book. What we did in designing portrait film is, is we f first this, did a lot of work with uh, computer video simulation. That is, we had scenes and we put them, put them through uh, simulation, computer simulations of what various films could produce. So we mess around. You change the MTF, you change the contrast, you change the saturation, you change the spectral sensitivity. In the old days, that is prior to 1990, you'd make a film. You'd make it actually, if you wanted to try a variation, you'd actually make the film, code it, and try it and find out that it's awful a little bit. So you go back and try again, and that's a very 
difficult way to do things. With the computer simulation, we could kind of narrow in to what we wanted to achieve. And what we did was then reduced the number of potential solutions so that we got down to a relatively small number. We actually made those films and spooled them in 120. And at the same time, we took some Fuji film, chain, put it in our experimental backing paper. The backing paper wasn't experimental, it just said experiment film. We took Fuji film, uh, NPS, NPH, and a Varicolor, a Konica film, uh, a Konica film, well, no, an Agfa film, it wasn't a Konica, uh, the Agfa 160 film, and put these, we spooled all these up as 120 film. Then we went out to about 30 photographers in the United States, in Europe, and Japan, and had them photograph, they, we had them photograph uh, typical wedding scenes, and they turned half the film to us, and half went to the regular lab, and they made prints. And then the photographers were given the prints with just a random label, and they picked out the best prints that they liked. So from that, we picked, in, in the case of portrait, we picked uh, two, conch, two saturation levels, NC and VC, for 160 and 400. But Varicolor was in that mix. Uh, it turned out that it turned out that Varicolor didn't do very well. Interesting. Uh, the portrait films were, were better, and the Fuji were intermediate. Uh, so we, from that, we decided what portrait films would would end, we would end up manufacturing. So there was a, a 160 BC and HC, BC and NC in the same in 400. It, it, interesting. Okay. We're all reading and hearing in the news about supply chain, right? I hear that because of COVID. One of the things we had to do was when, we, when you introduce a new film, what if it doesn't go well? You got to have a backup. So we made enough Varicolor to carry us in case the portrait film was a flop. So we had Varicolor and wide roll in our pockets. Uh, Unfortunately, Portrait was not a flop. And as it turned out, we had Varicolor film we almost couldn't give away. <laughs> we actually uh -huh. ended up scrapping Varicolor wide roll because when we offered it to photographers, they said, no. what about a 10% discount? No. <laughs> what about a 20% discount? They want the good stuff. They wanted Portrait. Yeah. So, let, let me just say, Portrait 160 is my hands down the... To me, the best film that was ever made. Oh, good. The new, the new stuff, at least. Like, yeah, I could I just live with that yeah. film. I could do everything. Even my black and white looks better when it's shot from that film. <laughs> yep. The, the portrait films worked out well, lar largely due to our ability to computer simulate what we wanted to do. Yeah. And the other thing that helped portrait was the maturing of the manufacturing process. Uh, we, we built a new coating facility and started running around 1990. And it was very, very, very repeatable, very precise, very accurate. So that still, we used to make, the volumes we used to make were huge compared to today. But we were able to reliably make film day in, day out, 
we, we didn't we didn't have to throw anything away. It was all good because the process was so reliable. I see Anthony raising his hand. <laughs> Robert, I just want to get in a, a question about a, a film that I stumbled upon that it's, it's a little bit before your time, but I think it's like one of these great lost Kodak films. And it's at a, out of a European auction. I ended up with 400 feet of, of Eastman 5220XT, uh, which apparently was only made for like eight years in the 1960s. And as far as I can tell from the very little bit of documentation that's floating around out there, it was the cinematic version of Panatomic X. Uh, had you ever heard of this film? Because it was also it was used uh, as a, a daylight version of Double X, but also for uh, rear projection in Hollywood. Yeah, I, it was a, I didn't pay much attention to motion picture. I made decisions early in my life that I was not going to pay attention to motion picture. We lived the motion picture folks and we were in kind of separate, separate worlds, even though for a while the motion picture guys were literally in the next office from me, but I I never paid a lot much attention. You have to be careful when you use, okay. Using 5220 is a good descriptor using the term, the word panatomic gets used for all sorts of stuff. It may or may not have any relationship to any other panatomic. Uh, The film codes are pretty descriptive. But the marketing folks have a tendency to use word descriptors that meets their needs as opposed to being descriptive of the product itself. Well, I guess I guess my follow up would be, uh, is there any chance that a version of Panatomic X or a, a, like a low speed 25 ISO there you go. black and white uh, could be brought back to market? Because I know that Codex talked about possibly reviving uh, a few of their older stocks. And I know that that's one. Uh, yeah. Mike's holding up a, a hundred. This, foot this, roll. this is my all time favorite black and white film. This film, I call it time travel film because this, this box here expired in 83. I've shot pan X that expired in the seventies. It's <laughs> gotta can, be like the last box. You yeah. That I've shot stuff <laughs> from the seventies and, um, it, it, you can still shoot it at box speed. You do not have okay. to add any exposure to it. Um, it does not show any kind of like fogging. Um, it is. It, I love this film so much, and I I, I I I hate saying it because I feel like people are buying it more than they were before. Um, <laughs> but I, I, if I had my fantasy <laughs> film that Kodak would make again, this this would be it because this is just such a beautiful film. Uh, but I, I know that you had a question there, Anthony. I just wanted to add well, that. The, out the question is, if Kodak wanted to, is that a kind of film that they could bring back? Given enough time and money, you can do anything. Well, like, <laughs> it's like a, a matter a, of it's a ma- There's no, there's no physical reason why you can't make it. They'd have to, you know, do a development program and do it. But there's, it's not like it uses some magic fairy dust that. <laughs> doesn't exist what? anymore i think well, there is fairy dust in here i just didn't know if perhaps they'd you know disassembled you know the the sort of machinery that was used to coat those those films because it seems all, to be- yeah all that machinery is certainly gone there's no question but that doesn't mean so that, that doesn't mean you can't you can't do it the machinery they have now is better than mach- that machinery Ooh. uh we were talking in last week's episode about Fuji's peel apart film and how, when, when Fuji made the decision to stop producing it, they, they destroyed the machines. They destroyed the processes. They, they basically killed any, 
any attempt that any future would have um, at making it. And I think that that's, you know, a sore subject for a lot of photographers that wish there was, you know, a way to shoot like those old Polaroid land cameras again with, with something resembling the original film. You know, another film that you, you may have been asked before that I think a lot of people say will never, ever come back is Kodachrome. You know, the, the slower Kodachromes, because isn't it, it more of, it, of an issue of the development chemicals that are harder to recreate rather than the film itself? Um, you know, is the film, okay. The film's basically a black and white film is triple coated for RGB sensitivity. The all the magic, all all the magic is in the process. Here's what I used to do. I used to manage the Kodachrome business. That's my business card for managing. Okay. You can't. He's holding. It. He's holding up a, a business card of himself. That's uh, very it says, vintage. World. It's very vintage. I had hair. <laughs> That's what I meant. Hair. Like, <laughs> I was a worldwide product manager for Kodachrome. Wow. Uh, and and with that time, we came out with 120 Kodachrome. We came out with 200 Kodachrome. Um, we did a dye transfer gallery at Photokina, uh, all from, from Kodachromes. Uh, but the magic with Kodachrome is in the process, and the difficulty is the, the dyes that are used for Kodachrome you, you can't really source them anymore. Uh, there's nothing magical in the film itself. It's just three black and white coating, three black and white emulsions with a gel coat in between. Uh, but the magic is in the process. Right. And the problem is a business problem as much as a technical problem. To, to, to have a coat, I was involved in installing several Kodachrome labs uh, in the United States and in, in, in Japan. And you have to have a very sophisticated analytical lab to run the process. You need a, a high quality chemist to, to do the analysis that's required and keep it in balance. Yeah. So that's tough. And it's got to be, these, you know, you, and it, you can't have, it in, have one on every street corner. So you end up with the, not having immediacy in the process. We had we had a lot of labs. I don't know, twenty five or thirty labs at one point. Uh, but I can I can safely say that, that that I don't see that Kodachrome will ever come back. Uh, certainly not by Kodak or Fuji. Uh, so ec economics aside. There's really no technical reason Panex couldn't come back, right? No, because you you okay, you're not okay. You're going to do it based on what you're trying to achieve, not right. not how you're going to get there. Yeah. So it's a okay. it's a specification based technical pan would fall under the same. I'm waiting for you to right. ask about tech pan. Tech <laughs> pan would fall under the same thing, except the equipment that was used. To make tech pan was a very specialized. It was called U batch. It was a very specialized emulsion kettle, which at the end was used only for tech pan. So you got this emulsion making position, which cost you a couple million bucks, that can only make one is only making one product. So yeah, you you got to keep thing running whether you could figure out another way i don't i don't know of a way to make those particular emulsions except in a device called a u-batch which doesn't exist anymore could you build a new one sure given enough time and money but you know tech pan was one of my babies 
uh, I did Technol Developer and Tech Technol LC and Technol Liquid, and we brought out TechPan in 35, 120 in sheet film. And TechPan is like the, you know, you can do anything with it. You can process it to a gamma two. You can process it to a gamma for continuous tone at 0.54 or whatever. But TechPan was great, but the, the, the ability to make it with that equipment would have, would have required a development program. And you can spend more on the development program than you'll ever, you'll ever make back. So I have to ask, I, I would be remiss if I didn't. Um, okay. Is there even the slightest chance that somewhere in your home in the basement, there's like huge boxes of, of hundred foot rolls of this film that, that, that hasn't, hasn't been used yet? I can guarantee you there is not. I, I, in fact, I don't Sucks. think I don't think I even have one. I've given most of my Coda stuff uh, to the George Eastman Museum, so I gave all my film samples, all my uh, books that show comparisons of different products through the years. I, I gave all that stuff to the George Eastman Museum. I think I saw on your website that the proceeds from your books go to the George Eastman Museum too, correct? I, I yeah, I, I give I money. That? I, yeah, I, I, I've given more money to them than I made on the book. One okay. thing I bought from, by the way, this is really cool. A couple of years ago, we found some guy in Boston had a roll of film that was intended for the original 1888 Kodak camera. I think I saw a picture of that. That recently showed up, like what, maybe two years ago? Yeah. Am I thinking the same one? Yep. So we bought, my wife and I bought that and gave it to the wow. museum. And they were delighted with it. It turns out, I don't know if you remember, the original Kodak camera was you'd get 100 round prints, even, and you'd send the camera back to Kodak. It was American film. So, you, so the, the emulsion was actually coated on paper. Right. And then the emulsion was peeled off in water and hooked onto a glass plate and then contact printed. Yeah. So, but for those who did not want to send the camera back to Rochester, you could do professional it yourself. Photog- you could do it yourself. Right. And that's the role we found. The guy, unfortunately, who had it knew what he had and realized it was one of, it was the only one that's known yeah. to exist. But we were able to buy, we, we were, the George Eastman Museum was able to convince the guy to sell it to him. So we, we bought that. Well, I told you, you know, I, I love history. I love dealing with these stories. And, you know, the, the 1888 Kodak is something that I, I don't ever anticipate being able to handle myself. But I actually did a review um, of an article Jason Schneider had written back, I think, in 1980. Where I he know had, Jason. Yeah, he had gotten a... Um, uh, I think one of the copies of it yep. and he did a review in modern photography like they were reviewing it back in 1888. So they wrote it like a new review of, you know, a hundred year old camera. So I did on my website, I used his article to make my own version of that, that, that camera. And um, while I never claimed to be an expert at it, but I learned so much about how that camera was constructed and, you know, the genius, in my opinion, of that camera was in, was in how little, you know, other than the shutter, they, they had a really interesting like barrel shutter on it. Right. But Kodak basically built that out of almost off the shelf parts. You know, it used a string to tension the shutter. Yep. Um, I, I learned about how that paper film was made. And I mean, it was just it was just incredible 
what, what George Eastman thought up back then, you know, I mean, it, it seems basic today, but you know, what that camera meant for, for this hobby and for people to be able to shoot, you know, decent images um, was just super cool. Yeah. That was a real advance. It was 25, $25, which was yep. a lot of money at the time. Uh, the, the person involved with that was called Frank Brunel. He was, he worked, he had a separate company in George's, George Eastman's building and then later worked uh, for Kodak and then later went off by himself and did something not related to photography at all. But they took relatively simple mechanics and made the thing work. And uh, Eastman was pretty, pretty good at that. And so was Frank Brunel. Do you have a question, Mario? Um, yeah, not, nothing really related to the historical aspect of it, but um, it's about a particular film that I uh, got a chance to shoot twice. And I was thinking about what you were saying regarding uh, spectral sensitivity. I was having a discussion with my son um, pretty recently about uh, what humans can see, what, what kind of light we humans can see and the spectrum of color. And that outside of that spectrum is still the light spectrum that extends in either direction quite quite a distance, you know. And uh, so I recently got a chance to shoot some uh, infrared film, the ectochrome infrared, okay. uh, two rolls, and it's so beautiful, such beautiful film. So I guess my question is sort of in three parts. <laughs> <laughs> what makes infrared film, like how, how can infrared film be made when we ourselves can't see infrared is one question. Um, could it conceivably, the second part, could it conceivably make a return? And third, if we can make film that's sensitive to that part of the spectrum, could we conceivably have a film that's sensitive to the ultraviolet uh, end of the okay. spectrum? I understand. Those three. I understand. <laughs> okay. And, and, okay. Work work was done prior to World War II and then continued in, in World War II by a guy named Burt Carroll, who worked in the research lab and then taught at RIT, who's now passed away. And the work, what I talked before about putting dyes in TMAX film, you do the same thing for infrared film, except you use dyes that absorb infrared radiation that energizes the silver halide crystal, creates a latent image, and then rest, you know, you develop it in a normal fashion. So that it's a matter of, and you're rather limited. You can't, okay, your, your vision is from 400 to 700 nanometers. You can go to 990 maybe or 900 with infrared. Beyond that, you don't have any dyes that work, that work out there. So that's why it's limited, and that's why you can't use it to see if you have a heat leak in your house. We actually had a we we get so we got so many questions about why can't I photograph my house to find out where the heat is escaping that we actually had a sheet that we mailed out to people because we got that question so often. Wow. So you're you're limited to that to that. Um, you what what was the second part? Could it conceivably make a return as far as it being? Oh, okay. It, you know, a few few people are making extended red films that go out to the 800. Uh, I was going to mention Roly Retro ADS is, is yeah. a good uh, near-infrared yeah. film. And that's on S-Star, by the way. 
so, which means it curls up like crazy and it's difficult to deal with. But yeah, Raleigh IR four hundred is another one. Um, yeah, uh, it also curls, so it's probably an S-star base. <laughs> yeah, it is S-star. It's it's called corset. That is, it has a memory. Uh, uh, acetate doesn't have as much of a memory. Um, could technically could it be done? But there's a problem. The problem that Kodak would have is that Kodak uses infrared in their spoolers. Oh. So what, you, what it would mean, it, and in the coding machine, what it would mean is you'd have to retrofit all the alarm systems in the coding machine and in all the spoolers. So you've already spent more money than you would, make, you, you would take in in 100 years of selling infrared. They okay. made that decision uh, about 19, about 2000 and six 15 or 16 and and so they they use infrared in their alarm systems and such and in all their scanners kodak kodak film is scanned for looking for physical defects and that's all infrared so could you you know can you as i said you can do anything with enough time and money and that way basically was our attitude by the way um but today they use infrared scanners on the, the roll the roll coating machines and on the film coating machines and the film finishing machines. So that's not a, a possibility they have. I assume I'm assuming Fuji's in the same position, but some other guys may choose to do everything in the dark and maybe they don't scan looking for defects. All Kodak films are scanned with infrared looking for physical defects. Some 35 millimeter cameras from the 90s also have infrared inside for uh, uh, counting the film, the frames going by and things like yeah. that. And they're no good for infrared. Yeah, yeah. I shot it on. I shot mine on a, a Minolta SRT 102 uh, because of that. You know, nothing getting in the way of the the infrared. So, yeah. I, I, I've shot a lot of the the Raleigh uh, IR 400 and it. It goes out to about 800 nanometers, I think, and and it, you get a good infrared effect. Like it, yep. it's, I like it; it's pretty good. Okay. Yep. Robert, this is probably another variation of the if there's enough money and willing to lose money yeah. trying to make film. But is there? Do you foresee that there'd be any possibility that some of these smaller uh, filmmakers like Ferrania or Foma or uh, um, you know even Ilford could kickstart a uh, color film processing i mean obviously kodak had all of the equipment and the technology and the patents and the the legacy for it uh but how insurmountable would that be for a company that is primarily focused on black and white you know historically do you mean film processing or film manufacturing film manufacturing like to, to, to yeah. bring out a there's, new color film i think there's little chance for two reasons first reason is the materials that are used for making their equipment, most of their equipment could not put up with the exception of Ferrania. Ferrania could, is made of a stainless steel that would be resistive to the chemicals used for color. But I know other manufacturers don't have that capability that they made the decision when they built their factories that they weren't going to handle some of the more corrosive uh, color materials. This, the other reason is the machine that okay, Kodak and Rochester 
has the ability to make color film single pass. That is, you start with a roll of film base and you roll up finished product. Everybody else, including other Kodak factories, have to do multiple pass. That is, you laid you lay down you, you lay down a layer or some, several layers and you roll it up. Then you go back and put it through the machine again. When you do that, your costs go out of sight. Kodak had the ability in building 38, which is still operating, to do it single pass. And to do that, you have to have a very sophisticated uh, piece of coding equipment. The, how the coding works, I'll try to describe this because I, I can't use pictures. You have, an inclined, you have an inclined stainless steel plane. Uh, it's 54 inches wide. And in one at the top, you, 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 you push, you put some chemical on it and it flows down the inclined plane. At the same time, you have a, a slot just below that and you squirt, squirt some liquid through there. So now you got two layers going down the plane. We did that. Ten, we did. We were able to do that with 10 different layers which is sort of, and then when it gets to the end of the inclined plane, it drops about 10 inches in free fall. And that's called curtain coating. And we, we had two stations like that on the coating machine. So you can put down 20 layers simultaneously uh, without, without rolling it up. Um, you need, for ectochrome, you need between 17 and 18 layers for most color negative films, you can get away with 12 or 14 layers. But to make a color film economically, you, you need to be able to do it. Doing it multi -pa multiple passes is not very efficient. Uh, so I think there's those, those difficulties uh, for somebody else to get in the color. The other thing is, you know, black. Black, I, I one time I estimated it. What did I say? I think, it's, I think I figured it's about an order of magnitude more difficult to make, that's a factor of 10, to make color film than black and white film. I may be understating it somewhat. You know, it may I mean, be a, a lot, little worse. A lot of people would probably, you know, argue that digital cameras are, are, you know, have a ton of a technology and processing power and such like that, and they do. But, you know, when I hear you describe the process of making, you know, 17 layers of ectochrome film, I mean, I, I think I'm more impressed that we were able to ever make, you know, these films than, than I am with the digital cameras of today. Because, I mean, I, God, I just, I, I, I can't even wrap my, I mean, I hear you saying these words, but I, I can't even wrap my hat around the man hours that must have went into coming up with this stuff. My view is it'll never work. Yeah. That's There's so many. It's it just there is so many things to go wrong yeah. and realize if one thing goes wrong, nothing else matters. Yeah. We for, were instance, for, for instance, if you get a if you get a coding slug and a streak in the film, it doesn't matter. It's no good. It's ruined. Yeah. You get a piece of dust. It's no good. If the color, if the color speed of the red sensitive, one of the red sensitive emulsions is 50% too fast, it'll never work because you'll get cyan prints. So it's it, it always amazing. We always, we always were very humble. And when we were making a coating, it will, will it work? It did, but there's just so many things to go wrong and you're dependent 
on so many people to do, you know, do something right, whether it's the, the guy that's making the chemicals or the guy that's rolling up the reel. And I'm, I, I'm humbled by the whole thing working. Yeah. And, and knowing how to do it is, we always said we stood on the shoulders of giants because it, it was generation, it was generation after generation. Remember, George started making film in 1880-ish, right? And every generation built on what the previous generation did. We, we made faster machines, we made better emulsions, we made better spectral sensitivity, but we always depended on two or three generations that went before us. So we were always very humble about that. Uh, it was more than just kicking the can down the road. You had to take what the previous generation did and make it better. Make we, it better. Add, we, we added a major coating facility every decade from 1890 to 2000. Wow. We kept making more and more and more and more. So we added a major coating machine every, every decade. So, you know, uh, um, talking about everything, you know, Kodak was constantly – kind of building and, and they were building up momentum and improving upon, you know, all the previous work and generations that came before it, you know, the, the elephant in the room, of course, is digital, right? Um, you, you were working for Kodak in the seventies. I know you said you were a kid, but you know, Steve Sasson is credited for coming up with the first digital camera. Uh, I think in 1975 while working for Kodak, you know, he, he hobbled together some off the shelf parts with a, a cassette tape recorder uh, that outputted a digital, a black and white digital image on a television set. And the story goes, you know, when he was done, he showed it to some executives and, you know, I, I can't imagine that they saw that that is, as something that would be good for their company. But do you recall, um, was there any talk back then that one day filmless cameras might exist? I mean, was there, was there any fear of that at all back then? Uh, okay. You, I, I can answer the, I'll answer the question. Uh, Steve Sasson worked, his lab, laboratory was next door to mine, literally next door. Steve wow. still, still remains a close friend of mine. Um, Steve, so I know what Steve was doing. I, I gave him, I helped him but I didn't do anything. I just helped him. I helped him learn about photography is what I did. Okay. And he credits me for that. Um, but S Steve's objective, and he also was a guy named Gary Lloyd he worked with. Uh, Gary has since pa passed away probably in the 80s. Uh, but, but Steve was given a CCD device and says, let's see what you can do with this thing. I think he got it from Fairchild. And I remember when that happened. Uh, we, we talked about it over lunch uh, several times and no one realized, okay, it's very difficult to, to think what's going to happen in 20 years. Right. Or I think Steve's prediction was 25. Uh, he wasn't that far off. You, no, he did pretty good. And <laughs> I have his report and it says in there, I didn't think this would be practical for 25 years, but it depended upon the electronics industry of being able to build high density CCDs and high density storage. Without that, he'd be nowhere. And it's very difficult, very difficult to forecast what's going to happen. 
at the time I was working with LED, these little things called LEDs. Uh, I was using LEDs to, to write on film. And I, I, I bought my LEDs from Monsanto and they were 35 to $65 a piece. Okay. This was in 1973. I could not envision that LEDs would now be dirt cheap. I, I, I think I, I paid, I bought a helium arsenide one and I think that was 35 and I bought another one, a red one. And I think that was like 65 bucks for one LED. And I'm thinking, wow, these things are cool, but what's ever gonna happen to them? I didn't think they'd ever get to be a penny or whatever they cost now. So from the Kodak's point of view, film was a pretty cool bit, was a pretty good business. Even, you know, Kodak was still doing pretty good in 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, made like $900 million in 2001. And the, okay, the joke was film made 120% of the profit. If you think about that, what that means is the name of the game was making film. Everything else was a loss leader. Kodak really never made any money on cameras, barely made money on paper and chemicals. The name of the game was film. So when somebody came up with something that was going to jeopardize film, there was not a whole lot of enthusiasm for supporting that. And, you know, the guys that came in, I, 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 I attended some of those sessions with the code, with the, I, I know I attended the one with the microfilm people and they're saying, you know, tell me where I put the film in again. Well, what I thought was interesting, you know, in my research, um, and I didn't know this until, you know, recently, but Kodak actually had uh, a lot of pioneering work done with digital cameras, you know, even as back as in, in the eighties, you know, adapting cameras like oh, yeah. the Nikon F3 uh, sure. in the nineties, they partnered with Fuji. They partnered with, uh, you know, Nikon, you know, adding their digital sensors to film SLR bodies. So, yep. you know, in, in a way, Kodak um, helped push and help develop digital technology to where it is now, which in, in, on a sideways sort of killed the company. So that's that's true. Yeah. Kodak JPEG joint expert photographic group. Kodak was part of the group that came up with the standard of JPEG. Uh, all that a lot of that early digital work was done in the professional in the professional division, which I was part of. Uh, but there's no money. There was you know, the, th the thing that led to the failure was the inability to generate cash and the, the, the market moved away. There are no uh, American consumer goods, electronics manufacturers. No. Uh, and even of, companies like Canon and Nikon are, are, are struggling today, too, you right. know, even to make regular cameras. We realized that we knew that we we realized the competitors were Sony, Canon to a much lesser extent Nikon because they don't, they don't have the breadth of technology that Canon and Sony had. So we, we, we saw the train. Now, no one can say we didn't see the train coming, but nobody knew what to do about it. <laughs> and Kodak was always looking for the big idea, but nobody ever came up with it to replace film. Uh, now they have some spectacular uh, commercial inkjet engines 
but it's nothing like what they had in the past. That's why the company's become very small. Yeah, I remember we had 120,000 employees. Now I don't think they even have 4,000. So, how how big was the uh, the movie film part of the business relative to consumer still film? Uh, consumer was the biggest. X-ray was second. Oh. Professional in motion picture was third. Wow. Gra- graphics was fourth. Micrographics was fifth. That's about camera it. was seventh. Pardon? Disc camera was seventh. Disc camera. This this camera was a non-player. The real, the the problem with this camera, I'll address that if you want. The problem with disc was, um, this was promises were made that the film would perform a certain, to a certain level. And the film did not perform to that level. Uh, That that was the problem. The camera is marvelous. The camera is spectacular, if you like an eight by ten millimeter negative. Uh, but the the camera the camera was spectacular. You can I challenge you go to a flea market and open a disc camera. The thing probably still works. Those lithium batteries lasted forever. Uh, the film did not perform as required, and that that's why disc was a, a failure. Uh, it didn't last very long, but promises were made that the film would perform a certain way if, to a certain level. You know, today, okay, if you took portrait technology and you put it into disc, it'd be great. But the technology for the disc, I don't remember the year 84 or so, uh, was a fizzle. Oh, hi, Mario. Well, I uh, just wanted to make one statement based on something you said um, about not being able to see 20 years into the future you know, up to the digital era and just 20 years or so later, here we are with a, what at least feels like a film, film renaissance um, to a lot of people. So it'd be nice <laughs> if that continued. But um, the question I have is kind of based on what you just talked about with the, the disc film, what accounts for the enduring legacy of 35 millimeter and 120 because there have been so many different formats and the only two that are really left over are, well, I guess three, the, the large format plus 120 and 35. It works. I mean, 35 is 30, 35 is relatively simple. You just punch a bunch of holes in the edge of the film and it transports reliably. And the, the base is huge. 120 is a bit more complex because of the backing paper. But it, 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 it works. Sheet film is the simplest of all. And it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, but all the other, it's in, your, your point's correct. All the other whiz-bang, 110, 126. Um, APS. All the APS. All, all these other, <laughs> A, A20, all these other attempts uh, failed. The, either either the industry didn't accept it or the consumer didn't accept it. 
Um, you know, one thing I, I think about, though, with with 35 millimeter film, even going back to the original Retina, which was, you know, the first camera Kodak made that used it, you really don't need two rows of perforations to make the film work. So if you think of the 35 millimeter width of the, the physical film and those sprockets are taking up, you know, a good portion of that oh, yeah. width, you know, they could have feasibly redesigned 35 millimeter at some point to still be 35 millimeter wide, but have a much larger negative. So like. When, when they came out with APS, the film was actually smaller. So, you know, it, it, do you think that Kodak misjudged their opportunity? I mean, like, why wouldn't they have gone with a film that could have made a larger negative instead sort of, of smaller? Like, sort of like Super 16 in the filmmaking world where they got rid of yeah. all the perfs and made it bigger. I, mean, I well, would think the, that the, the pros would have loved a larger negative, not a smaller one. Yeah, but, Kay, the, uh, I'll tell you some... This, this isn't a secret, but insider information. And that remember, remember, APS was was a consortium of a few Japanese camera companies and Kodak. The Japanese insisted that the camera be smaller than could be achieved with 35. That's not something, you know, Kodak doesn't roll the world here. I know the APS guys real well. The Japanese insisted that... Uh, the film be smaller, and that's why it's 24. We would have preferred it to be larger, but the consortium, yeah, everybody gets a vote, and we only had one, and the Japanese wanted, the Japanese felt for their home market, the camera needed to be smaller. There was something called Super 35, which was uh, basically 828, which had a single perf but without backing paper, but that, that never made it to being commercialized. And that they used 35 millimeter wide film. And the format was in the order of, uh, what was the size? 28 by 32 or something like that. 828. It's slightly I think larger was, than 35, right? 828 was 28, 28 by 40. Yeah. And the super 35 was in that vicinity. But I, I, I don't, it, ne it never really reached, it never reached an ANSI standard or was, was never commercialized. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm still happy with 35 millimeter, but you know, you always just kind of wonder like what could have been had they found a way to make it bigger. Yeah. It, 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 there was so much, there's so much momentum and so what's such a large camera base after Nikon switched from 24 by 32 to 24 by 36. That became a standard. And that was, you know, post-World War II. Uh, and we, we were set up to make 35. You know, we, we could have made something different too, but it didn't happen. I want to so, give, so, uh, give everybody one more question here, but uh, go ahead, Theo. I was going to say, Robert, do, do you actually shoot film still yourself, personally? Occasionally. I have a dark room. But I wouldn't call my I I'm lazy. Uh, I still have a drawer full of Hasselblad stuff and a drawer full of Nikon, but I don't really. I I, I was going to buy a digital back for my Hasselblad, but I bought a new car instead. <laughs> uh, I do so. I do I I do do some, and I can I have the ability to scan negatives. I don't I don't have the ability to print. I. I still have an enlarger. I have a lights enlarger. I gave my Chromega to the Eastman Museum. I could still go there and use it if I wanted to, but I prefer to, if I shoot film, just to take it to my local. We have a good photo finisher in Rochester. Uh, 
and also a good E6 lab. Yeah, I do the same. I try and support the local um, local lab. It works for me. Gives me more time to shoot. Yeah. You know, I, I'm one of the crazy guys. I don't know if you can see this, Rob, uh, Robert, but yeah. I can't talk to a Kodak guy and not show off my Ektra. Um, you know, the- yeah, that the, Ektra is an interesting story. That was really ahead of its time. Yeah. But hit in, just before the war and never really got off the ground. Yeah, I mean, they, they over-engineered it. They priced themselves out of the market. But I got to tell you, boy, these things are gorgeous. Yeah, they're very nice. Uh, and actually, the that a- after the war, that market for Kodak moved to Germany and Stuttgart. And uh, Stuttgart made the Retina after and, and Stutt- made the Retina. And the Ektar never surfaced again. And it was ahead of its time. It had interchangeable backs and pretty good lenses. Uh, not many of them around, I don't think, anymore. I no. see them occasionally. It's yeah. been scarfed up. If I remember off the top of my head, I think the estimate is like no more than like 1,100 or something were made total or something like that. So Yeah, it's a modest, it's a modest yeah. number. Right. I, I wanted to ask Robert if he worked with or knew uh, Ron Mowry, who was known as photo engineer on the APUG forums and was a, a guy very, very generous with his, you know, I thought monumental knowledge of, of uh, Kodak film and emulsions. Oh yeah. I knew, yeah. I knew, I knew Ron and after he retired and after I retired, uh, we both served as advisors or consultants at the Eastman house. And I, I was in almost constant communication with, with him. Uh, He, so we came from really different, we came from very different places. He, he was in, in the labs doing fundamental stuff, but Ron was a very accomplished photographer and he had worked in the early days of uh, the NASA stuff with, uh, John Glenn and those guys, Scott Carpenter and some of those guys, and uh, Alan Shepard. And he worked for, he worked for, uh, he was in the Air Force, and he, he worked in Houston, and then he went back to, he went to college, and then Kodak hired him as a chemist. So I knew Ron very closely, uh, pretty much from, I knew him before I retired, but we didn't really interface at work. Uh, we communicated and we would talk relative to his answering questions on APUG at the time. Mm-hmm. Sad, sadly, Ron's health deteriorated and it got so he really couldn't do much with the Eastman house. And then he passed away. I don't remember how long. In fact, I posted it on APUG when he died and yeah, he got a lot of generous replies, but he was a great guy. He knew his stuff. He absolutely. He, he was very generous with his knowledge. Like he would, yeah, he would answer. Yeah, how long should I? You know, how long should how long should the fix be to get you know to get archival uh, negatives and very mundane questions to very very esoteric questions as well. Yeah, and our 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 knowledge overlaps somewhat, but he was more. He was more nuts and bolts. Uh, I I knew, I knew the business and I knew the manufacturing procedures. One, I'll, I'll make a comment about Kodak. Kodak was very weird or funny in that the research people knew, the, 
the research people were not told what was done in manufacturing. It was a very conscious decision. The research people would present tools to manufacturing. You want to solve this problem? Here's five different ways to solve the problem. But manufacturing would not tell the research people which tool worked. They were not, they were not aware of that. Ron was a bit unique in that he knew how things worked and worked as a photographer. But most, most of the people in the research labs worked on a single mechanism. They didn't work on the combination of mechanisms. Mm. Thank you. You're welcome. I feel like the evil parent that has to tell kids to go to bed. But <laughs> I, I know that we could probably do a whole second podcast and, and, and just keep talking forever and ever. So um, I think this is a good time to wrap this up. Um, does it, did anybody have any questions they wanted to ask? One what final, final question. Sure. Robert, I believe you actually inspect every single book that, get, that gets produced. Uh, I do. That that that's an amazing amount of commitment. Do you, do you find that um, you know, the quality of the printing these days is actually um, considerably better than you would have found in in previous uh, previous years? Okay, I'll tell you. My, my okay, the first the first edition is printed on a Heidel, Heidelberg sheet fed uh, letterpress, and that quality was very good. It's you know. Six six color station Heidelberg press that was very good. Uh, the second one is printed on a Hewlett Packard Indigo, and that quality has been good. However, I have had instances in which the colors did not meet my standards, and I rejected the books. I think I did that. I've had third. I've had thirteen printings, and I think twice I rejected the books for color. Um, and it, they just, they just didn't do what the, it just didn't do it quite as good as they, they should have. Um, and it, I, we sat down and went, went over, went over it and the printer, there wasn't much of an argument. I said, this is what you did before. And this is what you're getting now. Yeah. Why is that? And, and in both instances, they were able to identify what went wrong uh, there's two reasons for inspecting the books. One, I don't want to ship a book that's bad. Secondly, if I, okay, if I ship a book to Europe, which costs $67, and there's a missing page or something's upside down, which I've had happen, or the color's bad, it's on me to ship them another book. So I only, not only do I lose a book, I lose $67. Yeah. Plus, I, I did everything in the book myself. I did all the photographs. I did all the layout. I did all the color correcting. I sh packaged them myself. So when I get a shipment of books, I go through every single I go through every single book to make sure there's not a problem. I've had I've had books. I've had books that got bound upside down. It's not a pleasing thing. <laughs> no, uh, I, I so, hate reading, reading words upside down. So, it's an amazing commitment to quality, though. It really is. Yeah. Well, that's how you do it. I mean, okay, remember what I did. <laughs> Same thing on film. We knocked ourselves out to make film that was good, and I think the guys still are. I, I was just going to say that. There, to me, there's like a correlation between the amount of effort and love that went into Kodak film, and that's clear from your book, too. Yeah, and I never, I, I never had to recall a product. My, 
30 years or whatever. None of, none of the, we, it doesn't mean we didn't make things. It doesn't mean that things didn't happen, that we had film in the warehouse that we decided not to sell, but we never had, I never had to recall anything. And I didn't, I didn't realize how important that was until after I retired and I happened to think back, geez, I don't remember ever recalling anything. We've had, we got, we had stuff that got in the warehouse that we weren't happy about, but we were able to call it and trash it. Uh, that's the ability of controlling your supply chain is that, and we never, we, we didn't, unfortunately, yeah, they're having supply problems now, I think, but we never, I don't, we never really stocked out of anything, but we, we would make, okay, to, to, to prevent that, we had, we would make 13 weeks of a wide roll before we, and we'd have that in wow. where we'd have that in stock. And we kept usually eight weeks of finished goods ready to ship, but we didn't want to stock out. And sometimes we would have to fly material to other parts of the world. So people wouldn't stock out. And that's not a good idea. That's an expensive proposition, yes. but we would do that. But so it, you, it's so a culture. Yeah. So all books are available through you, through your website, makingkodakfilm.com. Yes. Um, they order straight from you. I, I can see you have a, a, an ordering section on the website that if anybody's interested in picking up the book, you have the prices for both the first and second editions, it looks like. Um, yes. And then the email address that's on the website is the best way to contact you. Yeah. And if we generated any questions send me an email to the yeah. same it's it's uh, making kodak film at yahoo.com and i'll i i'm i'm happy to respond uh i'll, I'll i i answer emails it takes me a, sometimes it takes me a few days but mm -hmm. i'll try to answer uh questions I, I like questions because it makes me think about things and you retire you don't have that much to think about <laughs> so and it, it's good from a retrospective I, 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 I like to look back and figure out, you know, did it make sense to do this or do that? And most of the things we did were well thought out. Uh, but I'll answer questions if somebody sends an email to making Kodak film at yahoo.com. That's great. Uh, Mario, is there any way you wanted to tell anybody to get a hold of you? Do you have a, a website or anything? I know you're. No. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Mario Piper. Uh, I have a podcast, Gen X Photography Podcast. Um, I'm on Flickr, Mario Piper, Mario underscore Piper, something like that. Um, I guess those are the ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about you, Howard? Uh, I, I'm not on Instagram. I, I'm on uh, uh, my film photography is on Flickr under my name, Howard or H. Sandler on Flickr. And I'm just, uh, I guess I can say I'm a longtime listener. I think I've listened to all eight <laughs> first time caller. And you can, I, you can I, say you've listened to all eight. And, and yeah. Eight, so, eight is still so being recorded. I, yeah. I love to talk about cameras and uh, analog photography. I, I was hoping I, on one of your uh, earlier shows, somebody introduced the word Ekman as a verb and like to Google something, to Ekman something. <laughs> that was a lot. I'm right? just. Just as a teaser, maybe for the future. Oh, now my background's ruining it, but it's a uh, color thirty-five. Okay, so I I looked at it before I, I bought this, and, and, and I didn't see it on Ekman.com because it's still being reviewed. I, I okay, all right, all right. For, all for right. me to for me to grab a camera that quickly means it's in within you know hands reach. 
<laughs> okay, well, I'm I'm looking forward to that because I, I had uh, I don't know. Well, I'll just say I'm I'm trying to sell mine now. And I'll leave it at that, and I'll uh, see what you think. I'll give you my preview of it. it. It's very nice. I do like it. It is better in quality than your typical Petri camera. Uh, it's it's obviously a competitor to the Roly 35, uh, but it is absolutely not up to the quality of the Roly 35. But it doesn't it doesn't make it a bad camera though. But any more okay. than that, you'll have to wait uh, for the review to come. I'm out. waiting with bated breath. Thanks. <laughs> it's probably better than my little uh, PhotoFlex MX 35. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> Toy camera that somebody gave me. Well, you know, I, I did finish the Helena. Uh, Theo, a couple episodes back, told me I needed to get a Helena. So I finished my first roll and developed the images from it. And and I have to say, I, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, oh, wow. But, That's the first time I've heard that about Helena. No, well, it's I got the Super Helena with the big viewfinder. So that definitely helped a lot. You went deluxe, mate. You went deluxe. <laughs> I went deluxe. But, you know, we've, we've, actually, we've actually hit a milestone. This is the first episode where we haven't talked about panoramic. <laughs> None of that. But now we have. <laughs> I like my wide lux. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's a legit, legit. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but hey, listen, guys, this has been great. Robert, thank you so much. This is this is the kind of thing I want to do, you know, more of. Um, I love the history. You had mentioned early on, you know, when you were talking to Kodak about wanting to make this book in the first place, that you're not really competing with with Ilford and Kanika. You're competing with, with you know, each other. And, and no one's talking about this stuff. And if you don't take the time to make this information, just imagine how much knowledge would be lost. You know, and, and we started off this show with, with a quick memorial to my friend, Dan Arnold. Uh, Dan actually was a sports photographer and he shot a lot of images of uh, like top baseball cards, you know, oh. so um, a lot. Of, I don't know how many. Honestly, I never really had a chance to talk too much about it. But just imagine the stories he had that, that no yeah. one's ever going to hear anymore, you know, that he's gone Um you know, and we're losing people left and right. And I think it's so important to try and get that stuff out, whether it's in the format of a printed book, whether it's a website, whether it's a podcast, um, you know, the internet is great at absorbing information and retaining it, but we, you know, it, it takes all of us to, to get that information out there. So, so thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, I'm really glad Howard and Mari were able to join, you know, give us some, some new faces, some new voices and, and different questions. Uh, thank you. Anthony and thank Theo, you. you guys are always great too. Um, but um, that, that's it. That's that's our show for this week. Um, and stay tuned. We'll do it again next week. Uh, just like before, we record Monday nights at 9 p.m. Central Time. So 10 Eastern Time Zone, uh, 1 p.m. the next day in Australia. Uh, and then you <laughs> can just pull up a world clock to figure out all the other time zones. Uh, but thanks, everybody. You guys have a great uh, great rest of your week. Well, thank you for having Bye. me on. I appreciate it and enjoyed speaking with all of you. Thank Excellent. you. Very thank nice you to meet so you. Thanks very much, guys. No worries. I better get back to work.